Hi everyone. I trust that you're well, and that wherever you find yourself at present, whatever situation you are in, that in this past week you will have found and personally experienced Jesus's promise, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And I trust that for you then, this has been another week in which you've experienced God's grace and power and love. We continue with our sermon series, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Read, listen, take to heart. And we come today to what is possibly a fairly familiar section of the book, chapters 2 and 3, which contain Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Asia. Chances are that if you are acquainted with any part of the book of Revelation, it would be with this section. Firstly, because it's written in letter form, not apocalyptic, and therefore is a little easier to understand. And secondly, because if you've been in church for any length of time, you may have had a previous pastor who did a mini seven-week sermon series through these chapters, perhaps with the title, What Christ Says to His Church, or something similar. Now, I wasn't quite sure how to handle these chapters. I'd initially intended to cover both chapters 2 and 3 in just one sermon, but I soon realised that that would mean leaving out a lot of material, or a very long sermon, or both. <laughs> I then considered trying to cover one letter per week, but that would take us seven weeks just to get through two chapters, which might be a bit excessive. By the end, we would have spent nine weeks in Revelation and only reached the end of chapter three, with another 19 chapters to go. I'm still not 100% sure how this is all going to pan out, but I think I'm going to try and do both. I'm going to begin today by giving you an overview of Revelation chapters two and three, and then in the weeks that lie ahead, possibly not a full seven weeks, I'd like to spend some time looking at some of the messages to the individual churches in a bit more detail. Now, I don't think it would be right for me to do all the work myself. It would be good for you to have some homework too. And I'd like you to do a couple of things, please. Firstly, I want to invite you in a moment to pause the recording and read for yourself Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Or if you want to keep listening, I want to urge you in this next week to read Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and then consider coming back to this recording for a second time. I also would encourage you, when you read through those chapters, to get a notebook and a pen and write down some of the things that you notice, things that comfort you and challenge you, as well as anything that's unclear to you or about which you have questions. And then please share some of those with me, as well as give me a bit of your input. Send me a WhatsApp and let me know what was encouraging, what was puzzling. Are there particular things in these letters that you would like me to cover? Perhaps you could even let me know if you would like me to spend the whole seven weeks on these chapters. I might not be able to accommodate everyone's questions and suggestions, but as I said in my first sermon, I really would like this to be a journey that we take together. At the very least, I want to encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to go and get your Bible and open it to these chapters as I continue with this sermon. So 
Now would be a good time to pause if you would like to read those chapters. Welcome back. <laughs> You'll remember from our first sermon that in the opening verses of the book, we are told that this is a letter from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And in chapter 1 and verse 11, the Lord Jesus says to John, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, in chapters 2 and 3, we read seven individual letters from the Lord Jesus to each of these churches. Each of these letters are personal and are addressed to a particular individual congregation, and yet the format of these letters is the same. Each letter contains an announcement, an assertion, a message, a promise, and an appeal. And let's look at each of those in turn, because I think that here already there is a lot for us to learn. Firstly, in each letter there is an announcement, an announcement of the identity of the recipient and the identity of the sender. In each case, the recipient is the angel of the individual congregation, to the angel of the church in Ephesus Rite, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Remember that last time we said that the Greek word angelo literally means messenger. And we're not sure then if this refers to human messengers or angelic messengers. On the one hand, it would make more sense for Jesus to be writing to a human messenger, the leader or the pastor of the church, so that when you say, my pastor is a real angel, you may in fact be right. But on the other hand, we need to take into account that whenever John refers to angels in the rest of the book, he's speaking about angel angels, angelic beings, as it were. This has led some people to suggest that these individual churches have representative angels in heaven, just like we read in the book of Daniel that nations have angels, or as Jesus points out, that little children have angels. I certainly think that we shouldn't get too overly interested in this. Paul warns us in Colossians chapter 2, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. So I think it best just to say that there is a bit of a mystery here. But whoever these angels are, it is clear that actually Jesus is addressing the church at large, and more specifically, every individual in the church, as we will see. So there's an announcement of the identity of the recipient, and then there's also an announcement of the identity of the sender. In each letter, the sender is the Lord Jesus Christ, but the description of him differs in every letter. Each letter picks up a different aspect of the vision of Jesus that we had back in chapter 1. I won't go through all of these, but for example, in chapter 2 and verse 1, we read, 
to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Or chapter 2 and verse 8, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. And perhaps there is something important here. No one church is given the full description of Jesus from chapter 1. They are all given a part of the vision, which suggests that no one church has the complete picture. And this just means practically that there should be a broadness in our vision and understanding of what constitutes the Church of Christ. This is so dangerous now that I'm sending these messages out over WhatsApp and have no control over where they end up. But when I was in high school, there was a young lady who I really liked. The only problem, beside my painful shyness, was that while I was a Baptist, she went along to the Methodist Church. And I always felt that it would have been far better if she could have seen the light and left the Methodist Church and become a Baptist instead. We'll come to questions about truth and doctrine in a later sermon, but I think it's important to see that there is a wideness in God's mercy, that there isn't a single church or denomination that can claim, we've got Jesus, we've got the full picture. There is much that we can learn from other church traditions that may see other aspects of the person of Jesus more clearly than we can from our own point of view. So an announcement of the recipient and sender. Secondly, in each letter, there is an assertion. To each church, Jesus speaks the same wonderful two words, I no. Again, I won't go through all of these. Perhaps you could circle these words in your Bible or make a note of what Jesus says he knows about each church. But for example, Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. He says to the church in Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. To the church in Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 13, I know where you live. And to the church in Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. The eyes of the Lord Jesus, which are described in chapter 1 as being like blazing fire, see everything. In fact, if you look again at the letter to the church in Thyatira, in chapter 2 and verse 23, Jesus says, I am he who searches hearts and minds, which is both comforting and sobering. It's a great comfort for us to know that wherever we find ourselves today, in whatever situation, Jesus can say, I know. Perhaps you've been in the position where you're experiencing a particular illness 
or a particular situation and a well-meaning friend says to you, I know exactly how you feel. No one can know exactly how we feel, not even someone who has had the same illness or life situation, because while they may have gone through a similar situation, they have gone through that as them and not as you. No one can say, I know exactly how you feel, except for the Lord Jesus. He truly knows precisely and intimately, even better than we know ourselves, exactly what we are going through. And not just as individuals, but as a church. Jesus knows what we are experiencing right now. The difficulty in not being able to meet together, the isolation, the fear, the uncertainty, the things that we could be doing, the things that we are doing. He knows and he cares. But the words, I know, are also deeply sobering, both for us as individuals and as a church. They cut through any pretense or posturing. They penetrate our performance, our rituals, our outward appearance. Again, he knows better than even we know ourselves. He is the final judge of the church's real health. For example, he says to the church at Laodicea, chapter 3 and verse 17, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. The assertion, I know. So the address, the assertion. Thirdly, there is a message to each church. Each message is different and fits the situation of the individual congregation. In his commentary on these verses, Pastor John Stott points out that each church is either praiseworthy or blameworthy and receives either commendation or criticism accordingly. Most receive a call to repent, and with it a warning and an exhortation. The churches at Philadelphia and Smyrna receive no criticism from Jesus, while the churches at Sardis and Laodicea receive no praise. It's sobering to note that Sardis has a reputation for being alive and Laodicea has a reputation for being rich and yet they receive only condemnation from Christ. The other churches receive almost equal amounts of commendation and condemnation. And all of this is simply a reminder to us that there is no such thing as a perfect church. Eugene Peterson makes this observation in his book on Revelation. The churches of the Revelation show us that churches are not Victorian parlours where everything is always picked up and ready for guests. They are messy family rooms. Entering a person's house unexpectedly, we are sometimes met with a barrage of apologies. John does not apologise. Things are out of order, to be sure, but that is what happens to churches that are lived in. They are not showrooms. They are living rooms. 
And if the persons living in them are sinners, there are going to be clothes scattered about, handprints on the woodwork and mud on the carpet. For as long as Jesus insists on calling sinners and not the righteous to repentance, and there is no indication as yet that he has changed his policy in this regard, churches are going to be an embarrassment to the fastidious and an affront to the upright. John sees them simply as lampstands. They are places, locations where the light of Christ is shown. They are not themselves the light. There is nothing particularly glamorous about churches, nor, on the other hand, is there anything particularly shameful about them either. They simply are. End quote. When you read through the messages to these seven churches and Jesus' words of commendation and condemnation, you begin to see something of the Lord Jesus' priorities for his church, literally what Jesus looks for in a church. Perhaps you've had the experience of moving to a new city and of having to find a new church. And so for a few weeks, you do a bit of church hopping. What is on your mental list of things that you look for in a good church? Is it the grandeur or the cleanliness of the building? Is it the age of the congregants? Is it the vibrancy of the worship, the slickness of the service, the content or the length of the sermon, the programs that are offered, the coffee? These two chapters in the book of Revelation are vital for all churches of all ages because in them, the head of the church, the Lord Jesus himself, outlines seven priorities, seven marks of an ideal church. We'll be looking at some of these in more detail later, so let me just mention them at this point. The first mark of an ideal church is love. The church at Ephesus had once had a fervent love for Jesus, but in all of their labour and their pursuit of orthodoxy, they had lost it. Jesus says to them in chapter 2 and verse 4, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. The second mark of an ideal church is a willingness to suffer, which probably wouldn't have been too high up on our list of what to look for in an ideal church. Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, chapter 2 and verse 10, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. A willingness to suffer for Christ proves the genuineness of our love for him. The third mark of an ideal church is a commitment to truth. The church in the first century faced two equal threats to its very existence. There was the outer threat of persecution, but there was the inner threat of false teaching. And of the two, the inner threat of false teaching was probably the more dangerous. The church at Pergamum had survived the outward and obvious threat of persecution. One of their church members had even been martyred for their faith. 
and yet they had let their guard down when it came to the inner threat of false teaching. Jesus says to them in chapter 2 and verse 13, You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The fourth mark of an ideal church is holiness. One of the consequences of false teaching is bad practice, and the church at Thyatira was guilty of moral compromise because of its beliefs. Jesus says in chapter 2 and verse 20, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. As Pastor John Stott comments, tolerance is not a virtue if it is evil that is being tolerated. God still says to his people, be holy because I am holy. The fifth mark of an ideal church is authenticity. Jesus says to the church in Sardis, chapter 3 and verse 1, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The sixth mark of an ideal church is mission. The churches are lampstands, and while he was on earth, Jesus had urged his disciples, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And so now he says to the church in Philadelphia, chapter 3 and verse 8, See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can, can shut. And the seventh mark of an ideal church is wholehearted dependency. The church has to keep looking to Christ as its living head. We derive our life from him. And so the church needs a wholehearted commitment to him. Sadly, Jesus has to say to the church at Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. The message to these churches is that no matter their outward appearance or their inner condition, Jesus looks for love, a willingness to suffer, truth, holiness, authenticity, mission, and wholehearted dependence. So there's an address, an assertion, a message. Fourthly, to each church there is given a promise, a promise to Christian overcomers. In the same way that the pictures of Jesus that we have in these letters refer back to chapter 1, 
the promise to Christian overcomers refers forward to the descriptions of heaven that we have in the last two chapters of the book. In other words, the promise to those who overcome is eternal life with Christ. We need to keep eternal life in mind if we are to keep going. Not to see eternal life as a reward, but simply as our final destination as those who have begun the life of faith. This eternal life is described in slightly different ways to each church. It's described as the right to eat from the tree of life, Ephesus, not to be hurt at all by the second death, Smyrna, to be given some of the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it, Pergamon, to be given authority over the nations and be given the morning star, Thyatira, to never have one's name blotted out from the book of life, Sardis, to never leave the temple of God and to be given a new name, Philadelphia, and to sit with Christ on his throne, Laodicea. All of those promises describe what eternal life is like, which may help us understand something that might be worrying us a little bit, that part about names being blotted out of the book of life. It's not that a genuine believer could ever have their name blotted out from the book of life, but rather that Jesus describes eternal life as never having one's name blotted out from the book of life, never leaving the temple, being seated with him on his throne. The promise to overcomers. So an address, an assertion, a message, a promise. And finally, each letter contains an appeal. It's the same phrase that is repeated to each church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's a very important phrase. Although the letters are individual, the call is still to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These letters address every church in every age. Although these words were written months before they arrived at the original churches, and although in our case they come to us almost 2,000 years after they were written, it is still what the Holy Spirit says to the churches, present tense. Through the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus continues to speak these words to his church. But perhaps most importantly for us, this appeal is personal and individual. He who has an ear, literally let the one who has an ear, let him or her hear what the Spirit says. I think this is vital. Whatever we read here, the words of comfort and warning, even judgment, the call to repent, the exhortations, they apply to me individually. You see, you can't blame your church or rely on your church. You can't say, I'm all right, I belong to a good church. You personally have to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Equally, you can't say, well, it's my church's fault that they're going down that particular path. You 
personally have to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so as we close, I would urge us not simply to study these chapters and get some insight into them, but to ask the question, what is Jesus, through his word, given by the Spirit, saying to me today? Are there things here that I don't need to merely listen to, but need to hear and to put into practice in my own life? May God continue to speak to us through his word this week. May God richly bless you. Amen.